वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक The Sintokas around the table today discuss the medley of languages. We'll think about languages and why and how some languages mix and mingle and some arguably do not. In this context, how is the written language different from the spoken? What is the role played by literature and more generally culture in establishing standards? Are all languages mixed? is language contact always a political and cultural contact what are the structural outcomes of such a contact and the grammar and lexicon have very different origins in a mixed language how are new languages formed and what is the very long term future of the number types and purity of languages We are pleased and privileged to have three Sin Talkers with us here today. Professor Prabal Das Gupta, who is a professor of linguistics, and who has taught in several countries and states within India. Professor Jonathan Gill Harris, who is a professor of English and dean of academic affairs at Ashoka University, he is also a writer. and Professor Rita Kothari who is a professor of translation studies at IIT Gandhinagar So Prabal why don't we set the ball rolling with you um mm-hmm. to maybe start at the level of the process of how language contact happens um what does one mean when one says language is getting mixed or what's the process of mixing like what happens we we'll start there and see where we where we go from there the basic thing that happens is words move from one language into another so you get a word like theater coming through english into lots of indian languages mm mm-hmm. in bangla one says theater for example and every speaker of bangla knows because they know something about english that theater comes from english they don't always know that english got it from french that that's a different question that that's not on the table of the bangla speaker mm. uh, what then happens is that there's a lot of language contact that doesn't take that form mm-hmm. that takes the form of a concept from another language getting translated into words that originally were from your language but are now being used differently that's loan translation that's a loan translation that that what what happens politically is that many people who are puristic who want to preserve the purity of their native language insist on loan translations and imagine that they're not loans at all <laughs> that they are the pure language that that is when things begin to get hairy because purists are in fact insisting on a particular kind of loan rather than another kind of loan right <laughs> so suppose you have theater studies mm-hmm. as a discipline mm-hmm. and some university that's functioning entirely in bengali wants to talk about theater studies and they insist on calling it uh, natyatottu department 
but they use the word and department. They imagine that calling it Natutotto makes it a purely Bengali term. Well, there is no <laughs> such thing as Natyatattva in ancient India. Right. One is translating some English term. So it's a total neologism? It's a totally new word constructed? If one were to do it, I'm making this up, but suppose one sure. does do this. Sure, sure, sure. Then sure. that happens. If you want a real-life example, there's a nice anecdote. Shubhi Rai was consulted at Jadapur University by a young chap who'd been asked to put up a poster uh. for the inaugural session of the Women's Studies Centre. <laughs> and he said, look, Shubhita, I have a poster. We're going to start the Manubi Chocha Kendro, Women's Studies Center. Shubhita Choudhury said, when we were young, that was done in the canteen. Nowadays, you have to have a center for it. <laughs> 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 sure. The person realized that uh, this was a joke and Shubhita was saying that that term doesn't work. Sure. He said, what, what should we do? He said, at least you can call it Manubi Bidda Chorcha Kentro. Right. Women's Studies Analysis Center, basically. Sure. Womenology Analysis Center. So it became Manubi Bidda from then on. Shubidda is no more, but his term stands. But that, that's still lone translation. And, it, and so right. what, what is at work there? Where does this purity imperative come from? The purity imperative? Are there, are there languages that mix more easily? Uh, that's a harder question, but let me quickly look at the purity imperative. The, the problem is when we talk to each other, especially in a street setting or a market setting, we only care about getting across yeah. and getting the transaction getting done. Stuff done. Afterwards, when people go home and write it up and turn it into a piece of the culture, mm -hmm. they are becoming monolingual and they are cultivating a particular turf. And when you cultivate a turf, you worry about the concepts having a certain radiation into other concepts in a particular vocabulary, in, in a particular cultural system. And these systems are always fiefdoms. There is a Gujarati mm. fiefdom, a Bangla fiefdom, a Telugu fiefdom, and so on. Mm. There is no mixed fiefdom, you see. There's no mixed fiefdom. That's the problem. <laughs> there has to be an Until owner. So purity comes mm. from ownership. Mm. Mm. That, that's where it's mm. from. Right. What is this for you, Rita? What is uh, what is the purity imperative for you? Where does it come from? Is it largely a political question for you? You know, before I answer that, I sure. think I want to sort of, uh, I want to articulate my difference already Sure. with this conversation. Sure. Uh, which is that I, the question of whether some languages mix and some don't mm -hmm. and how they come into contact and how they don't, mm -hmm. To me, that question is one that is in the context of languages that we are cognizant about, languages where we know how they mix and how they don't. Sure. There is a huge degree of amnesia about the fact that language itself emerged as an institution, as a construction. And when you trace that to individual languages, then you can clearly see that, for instance, in the... 16th century, Kabir would not have known what his mother tongue was. <laughs> and in the, mm. in, the, in the 18th century, what the pioneering Gujarati writer, whom we see as a pioneering Gujarati writer, would not have thought of his language to be Gujarati. So I do think that somehow the label of language 
operates very often in this retrospective manner. Right. We sort of look back upon something and say, oh, the first English writer, oh, the second Gujarati writer. Right. But there is a there is a very, very complicated process of border making mm-hmm. that puts, that creates institutions out of certain things. That's very interesting. So, mm-hmm. And so the, the mixing that we are cognizant of and the mixing that we witness is usually the mixing of that later period after those institutions have been made. But what got formed was actually a monolingual idea of a language out of something that existed in an inchoate form. Mm. So... If I were to look at Gujarati, for instance, with, that's the state I stay, but sure. I, I also study many other languages around it, but in a different way. Sure. So let's just say that in order to distinguish Gujarati and mm-hmm. in order to establish Gujarati, you had to to sort of take away what seemed like a Marwadi elements from North Gujarat mm-hmm. and say, oh, in the northern border here, this is Marwadi and this is Gujarati. In the process, you created, Grierson creates something like Rajasthani, Rajasthan which Gujarat. did not mm. exist. Mm. There was no label called Rajasthani before Grierson created one. Mm. When you come to South Gujarat, you've got Gujarati spilling into Dangi. Mm. And then the Maharashtra, Marathi also spills into Dangi. Mm. At the time of deterritorialization of that territory, when you needed to separate states, you also needed to separate languages. And you needed to say, no, but those those are loan words and those are borrowed words. So even this vocabulary of loan and borrowed words, I find it highly, highly problematic mm-hmm. because I think that already presupposes that all these are already established institutions. It's owned by an institution exactly. to begin with. Mm. And therefore to say, I mean, I find, what does this mean to say you borrowed it from here? Like you're going to give it back, <laughs> you know, like you, like, like it was, like it was, there was an agency involved of this borrowing. So, th- so that is my one sort of submission to this. Sure. But that does not mean that we are not aware in our own times. And when I say our own times, I'm saying here, let's just say colonial India and now, mm-hmm. of certain languages mm-hmm. that certainly show a greater proclivity to, to, to cohabit with certain other languages, with certain other words. You do see certain kinds of tendencies. Uh, and I think what... Probal mentioned earlier about theatre. I completely see that. But I think we are very conscious of those examples because there is English involved here. Mm. We are not conscious of those examples where Amir Khusro is involved. Mm. He's writing in a mix, saying, singing in a mixture of Turki and Persian and, you know, Urdu and Siraiki and what have you. Mm. Was he thinking whether this is mixing or is it not? Is it sitting well or it is not? Or am I borrowing or am I loaning? He's not. And to me, therefore, the question of those questions are much more interesting in pre-modern India. That's interesting. And is this uh, any different when one thinks of it using the oral realm versus the written realm? Yeah, so I think So when you talk about Amir Khosro or you talk right. about Kabir, yeah. what, how were they writing? They were writing in a certain script. And of course, the script is different from the language. Um, but do scripts don't mix, right? Do scripts mix? Scripts also mix. Scripts can also take, and I think Probal would be in a better position to tell you this, but scripts also mm-hmm. are sometimes, I mean, they are forms of technologies which do take sometimes elements from other, I mean, Sindhi, for instance, has certain 
you know, certain kind, certain kinds of elements which it has taken from Arabic and some from Persian. So yes, scripts do miss. But ca- coming back to the question on Kabir and Amir Khusro, mm-hmm. uh, they were not writing. At least Kabir was not writing. Sure. Right now, people who are in search of Kabir, like the famous Kabir project, there are people who are saying, "Oh, Kabir in Avadi." Right. And yet right. Kabir would be in a Hindi <laughs> textbook. Right? That's very interesting. And yeah. of course, Hindi itself gets created as an institution much later. Much later, yeah. Right? Then there are those who are looking at Kabir in Khadiboli and Kabir somewhere else and people found Kabir being used in a certain way. So you might ask, the uh, to ask the question, which language was Kabir using, is also to say, where is Kabir? Right. They are... Almost synonymous. It is almost like saying, which Kabir do I subscribe to of these many Kabirs that exist? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Is there something analogous with Shakespeare, Agil? Well, definitely. I mean, uh, did Shakespeare know that he was writing in English? I mean, the way, of course, not in the same <laughs> sense in which we speak of it today, but was Shakespeare writing in English? Uh, that's a very good question. And, and just to pick up some of the threads from yeah. what uh, Prabal and Rita were saying, um, Loaning and borrowing, these are terms from a lexicon of ownership. Yep. And ownership less by an individual than by a language itself, um, which is um, a way of alighting the fact that the, the agency that has ownership is usually the state. Not necessarily the political state, but some kind of standardization um, that... Uh, that is responsible for the idea that the language is a singularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in Shakespeare's time, it's arguable that, like Kabir, he wouldn't have known what language he was speaking in, let alone writing in. Uh, he was very conscious of being an English subject, politically. Mm-hmm. But linguistically, that is uh, far more uncertain. Not least because there was no such thing as standard English uh, at the time Shakespeare was writing. In fact, England... Despite Ben Johnson's best efforts and so Well, Ben Johnson came later and is right. responsible for a lot of the more hard-line, standardized notions of English, mm. as is his namesake, Dr. Samuel Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> but when Shakespeare was writing in the early 1590s, at least, uh, the languages, plural, that were spoken in the British archipelago were in states of considerable flux, partly because of upheavals in the state, uh, Latin had been the language of the church, or more specifically of the Catholic church, mm. uh, which had been, um, of course, reformed. Uh, French had been, or a version of French, a dialect of French, had been the language of the nobility in England until probably a century before Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there were various dialects which doesn't mean there were separate languages. The but Celtic uh, sort of... Various linguistic communities, all of them dynamic themselves. Mm. Celtic, mm. Uh, Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian. And so there are a number of resources available to people speaking and writing in London in the 1590s when Shakespeare got there. London, of course, was uh, a mercantile city mm-hmm. uh, where we saw a lot of the kind of activity that Probal was alluding to before, mm. the need to negotiate. Mm. Uh, the bazaar. In bazaars, marketplaces. Um, 
is partly responsible for a lot of the energy that is conventionally associated with, quote, Elizabethan English. Again, that's a back formation, Elizabethan English. And people often credit Shakespeare with an extraordinary power of coining phrases, Mm -hmm. as if this was a unique ability that he had. (laughs) In fact, forensic research has shown that Shakespeare's vocabulary is not that much greater than that of any other playwright well, that's time. A, that's surprising. And <laughs> a lot of the neologisms attributed to him were probably new terms that he helped popularize rather than inventing. But Boy. the fact of the matter is Shakespeare was part of a linguistic community that didn't speak the same language. Uh, they all had at their fingertips, however, various um, dialects and idiolects from which they could draw. And... Uh, the creativity that is often associated with Shakespeare is to a certain extent a creativity that is uh, endemic to the situation, the historical Mm. situation at the time. Uh, When people developed in particular a love of punning that can only be the product of having words that sound identical in different tributaries flowing into... That have different meanings. That have different meanings. So to give you one example, (laughs) the opening lines of Romeo and Juliet... uh, which are often left out of uh, class lessons, involve a rapid succession of puns by two members of Romeo's family. Um, Mm -hmm. They're they're sort of street-smart kids, Gregory and Samson. And in very quick succession, they pun on coal, then collier, then colo, and then collar. Right. Coal is a Germanic term. Uh, Collier came with the French. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Collar is a Latin term from medicine, mm-hmm. um, and collar came with Italian merchants into mm. London. Mm. But Shakespeare is able to pun on all these because all these terms are available. Mm. Um, so, is this English? No, it's uh, it's instead. And I don't think he would have even seen himself as speaking four different languages at that moment. Yeah, it would have been a set of selective presence. Right. <laughs> but do, so would would they have first languages then? Would would there be such a thing as a first language, second language, third language? Also yeah, at yeah, uh, yeah. a time when, <laughs> when even one's mother mm. might speak a different language from the one right. you're speaking, because right. uh, Shakespeare, like many other people of his class, presumably had a wet nurse who would have spoken uh, uh, a vernacular language that might have been quite different from the the language that his mother spoke. Right. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, most uh, people, at least uh, of Shakespeare's class, but arguably of other classes as well, grew up in a plurilingual universe uh, where there were a number of linguistic elements at their fingertips mm. which weren't partitioned from each other mm. with the conviction of linguistic purity that we think about now. And I just want to finish by building on something that Rita was saying. We think of mixture... Um, in a way that predisposes us to presume there's an originary purity. Mm. You start off with pure particles and then you throw them together and you get your masala, you get mm. your kichiri. Mm. Uh, but if we start thinking of language as originarily mixed, yeah. as comprising multiple elements that then get standardized uh, through a variety of instruments... Is um, that a hypothesis or a fact? Like if you go back... 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 10,000 years. I mean, has language always been mixed? Is language mixed 
characteristically I'd be or curious. are there are there three or four proto languages from which things emerge <laughs> even the idea of proto language is something problematic for me uh, mm-hmm. because it presumes a singular origin out of which you know the confusion of tongues babel emerged yeah. mm. Um, and I, I become more and more convinced from the work that I do that uh, Babel is the beginning. <laughs> I, would, I would completely. I would think Babel is the foundation. Uh, how does one test that? One one gets the intuition behind that. Is there a way of being certain about that position? Well, I'd be curious to hear what. Uh, uh, what do you have to say to that? A Prabhal? linguist has to say. What do you have to say to that, Prabal? If you go back and and it. it Purely well, as, uh, we as an intellectual question. We usually go back to Sanskrit, and Sanskrit is a language that uh, abounds in what, what are called borrowings. The Sanskrit word for center, is which Sanskrit is a mixed kendra. Language? Kendra in Sanskrit is a loan word from Greek, for example, oh, the Greek that? kentron. Mm. Mm. Uh, that, that, that's just a, an extremely obvious example that people cite all the time. The point is... Uh, if Sanskrit is mixed, where does one look for purity? You see, one doesn't That's, have to look for it, but right, I think this is a yeah. good way to paraphrase it. That it also I know, but the babble. point is, people think <laughs> of Sanskrit as a paragon of purity. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the point I'm making. I mean, even in Sanskrit, yeah. you've got visible words from other origins and you know about them. Yeah. Words like Kendra. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and is 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 semantic governance, if if one were to call it that, possible at all? Is it possible to legislate that a language be more pure, um, not borrow as like I have something like French in mind, for example, which is administered uh, in a different sort of way. What legislation does, unfortunately, is force you to use loan translations and pretend <laughs> that that is purity. That's, for example, mm. when there's legislation in the Quebec province of Canada, where purity is a big issue, the purity of their French, it's a much bigger issue in Quebec than in France. They then insist that for electronic mail, people should not say email as in English, but courriel as in French, from courrier and électronique. But courriel is a loan translation of email. But that doesn't do the Quebecois very much good, but that, that's the kind of stuff they do. So poor Quebec, where everybody in France called parking le parking, in Quebec they call it le stationnement, because you must sound different from English. <laughs> so there's, there's happening all over Canada. In, in France you have stop signs that say stop. In French Canada the sign says arrêt, because you can't say stop, that sounds like English. Of course, what's hilarious is that courier comes from a Latin word, curare, and electronique comes from, uh, from Greek. Greek. Yes. <laughs> it's very, very but none of this is possible to maintain certain, not only philosophically, but that's a different issue, without certain degree of surveillance. This is not, it cannot be done in... You know, it just needs a power structure. It needs, yeah, it and it, it needs it needs border patrolling. I feel, you know, <laughs> it it's not possible to do it without certain amount of. I think I think sometimes I think dictionaries and grammars and institutions, they they perform the same function for language as we do for people who go astray on the borders. Hmm. 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 And and if we make this more complex, and of course we're talking of words getting loaned and going from one territory to another, whether or not those territories pre-existed, is there mixing of different sorts? I mean, can grammars mix? Can are there other sorts of? I mean, we've spoken about scripts already. I mean, are there phonological mixes? 
is it is it more complex than one would ordinarily think of this probal there are sounds that travel with the words attached to them when words from english with a z sound in them go to some language those languages may not have had initially a z sound but they start getting a z sound things like that mm. obviously happen but mm. what about grammar sounds per se don't make some grammar is a harder issue what tends to happen is that you get sentence structures syntactic structures that travel quite a bit and mm-hmm. uh, are there that, fewer grammars and syntactic structures than languages and all of these words used very loosely yeah you know there I mean. are fewer syntactic structures than languages yes and uh, they're distributed in ways that have partly depended on the travel i mean think things have traveled in certain directions and uh, that that has influenced the syntax so there's so why don't we use chinese words on a day to day basis we, we uh, tend we to do. pepper some i of... mean li chi comes out as li chu in bangla and so on and, uh, everybody calls tea by a chinese name either cha or chai or tea right chai okay. comes from one part of china and tea tea comes from another part of china these are chinese words all over the world right i don't think anybody has a term for tea that is not chinese right. anywhere where does chini come from that's a good question <laughs> it may mean that people were importing it from china hmm. i don't know i'm just guessing i have no idea that's that's very interesting and is there does it change the way we think does do does the mixing of languages change the way we think fundamentally i don't think anybody notices the t and ch chinese words for example mm-hmm. you kind of have to I be a specialist so. to know this mm-hmm. yeah what is your take on this waiter no i certainly think that language changes the way we think and i to come back to the earlier question if i could respond to that yes again not as a linguist sure but i do think for instance when you talk about whether only word by and large it's true that words travel sure. syntax is more difficult to travel sure. but for instance even in english language you're saying i'm not understanding what you're saying and i was remembering you yesterday but you were not coming only this grammar it is, is hindi it is grammar yes. too yes. right it's yeah. not uh, so th- the the present continuous tense mm. in the kind of english we speak in india mm. i think must have deeper roots about how we need to see something as an as an ongoing thing and not simply put that in the simple it's not adequate for our purposes to simply put that in simple past but coming back to the second question that you were asking i think uh language does change very often about for instance i i believe very firmly mm-hmm. that when we use the word space space in our languages hindi gujarati marathi mala space paise mujhe mari space chahiye nahi to mujhe nahi chalega mujhe wo space di nahi ja rahi oh all urban people who are using these other languages wo space ka istemal karte hain wo space shabd bolte hain wo jagah nahi bol rahe mala jagah paise this is not what they are saying mujhe jagah chahiye they are saying i want space now this particular space semantically must be a different meaning it is a different meaning but be- because it has a different meaning because mm. its marker mm. is both physical mm. and a certain figurative idea of privacy mm. which is perhaps not available i don't want to essentialize too much sure. but let's just say it is perhaps not available in our language right 
इवन प्रिवेसी या यू से आंखें पर्सनल से सवाल करती हैं आपने ये क्यों नहीं कहा कि आंखें व्यक्तिगत सवाल करती हैं आपको ये कहने की क्यों जरूरत पड़ी गुलजार को कि आंखें पर्सनल से सवाल करती हैं तो दिस नोशन ऑफ स्पेस प्रिवेसी पर्सनल ऑलमोस्ट ऑलवेज इट्स इट इट हैज टू टेक रिकॉर्ड्स टू इंग्लिश सो Are you doing that because that concept does not exist in your language? It might require what Prabalda was mentioning earlier. It might require you to 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 create to have some neologism. But it is also about saying that that idea of space, which is not simply you know, uh, which has these other meanings to it. And there could be ideas that exist in one language and don't exist elsewhere. At right. least in the form it, it, or, it or, could or the, be. or the but manner it, in which yeah, you want to use it. Yeah, but I think it. the aspiration towards an individual self mm-hmm. and the aspiration towards a very well-marked out territorial and figurative space, they are inseparable from each other and they are inseparable from the fact that they come to you from another language. That's very interesting. Why don't we change tracks just a little bit and talk about translation? Um... because in a way you could think of it's it's not the same as mixing languages but it it does play a role in negotiating yeah. that territory in some form or yeah. fashion yeah how easy or difficult is that and are there are there <laughs> some domains that that are particularly difficult almost impossible yeah or is everything translatable yeah so once again i'm going to overturn the entire institution sure of of translation because i i feel like one of the most uh most boring most reductive ways by which we look at translation mm-hmm. is to once ag- is and and it comes to be so because we have the view that we do of language right because we think that languages are these discrete entities and therefore in order to solve this problem of incomprehension or incomprehensibility i don't know which is the correct word between these discrete languages we think translation as the raison d'etre as this yeah. as this panacea that can solve this problem between but if you if you imagine languages in a certain cluster right i'm not saying everywhere but in a certain cluster languages is al- it's almost like a shading off mm. they are mm. not incomprehensible to each other mm. sometimes the move from one language to another might lie in a phoneme or a morpheme or a little yeah. a little change somewhere yeah. right yeah. Small so it's not somewhere. exactly yeah. so it's not as if they don't understand each other hence we need translation i do believe that translation is so central but translation as a word is not adequate to describe what i want to say and i'm troubled by that i'm troubled by the notion that when we are switching slipping from you know thoda yahan gujarati bola hindi bola aapko samajh mein nahi aaya angrezi bol diya when we are doing that i feel we are multilingualing mm Mm. I do not see multilingualism as a static state of affairs. I see it as an active verb rather than a sedate noun. Mm. And I mm. see the mm. act of multilingualism as an act of translation. I don't see translation as something that will come post facto later. Yeah. yeah. But I see that inherent in what Gill was talking about earlier in Shakespeare. Yeah. That yeah. is also a moment of translation. But do we want to use the word translation for that? That is my big disagreement with the entire discipline <laughs> well to a certain extent at risk of being cute a lot depends on how we translate translation right <laughs> um, because translation presume it literally means carrying across um 
what's the across there? Mm. And if we're presuming a border on the model of a state between discrete entities, then we've got a problem. But if we think of the across simply as a movement across space rather than across a border between yeah. two discrete entities, right. then I think we're much closer to the type of translation that Shakespeare is doing yeah. with and for his audience. Um, yeah. And the kind of translation, frankly, that goes on when, say, 21st century Indian readership uh, negotiates the vicissitudes of Shakespeare's language. Often my students ask me for a translation of Shakespeare, convinced that they will not be able to understand his language. Translation of Shakespeare. Yeah, they, they say, well, he's speaking a different language. To a certain extent, they're right. It feels too Latinized. It's, well, they think it's something archaic and remote. Archaic. It's a bit like should Sanskrit. Yeah. Um, and we've already seen should Sanskrit is a problem. There's no yeah. such thing. <laughs> There's no such it's thing. It's a retrospective Sanskrit. formation. Mm. And so this is why I always tell my students, you guys are actually in a better position to understand what Shakespeare is doing with language mm -hmm. because of your everyday practical experience of plurilingualism, of swerving between different possibilities. Uh, this is exactly what Shakespeare and his audience were, were doing. If you think of Shakespeare as a sacred scripture that belongs to a remote time with its own laws of syntax, grammar, and interpretation, then there's no way it can be translated. Yeah. Uh, but if we see Shakespeare already as a form of linguistic translation where words are being moved from here to there uh, to create new possibilities, I think that's something that uh, potentially resonates with the lived experience of most Indians uh, who inhabit multiple linguistic universes, or rather they inhabit a pluriverse that consists of multiple elements. Interesting, but at a practical level, is reading Shakespeare difficult? Like, It depends what you mean, again, by, by difficult. If because, you know, one, 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 even if one is pre plurilingual, yep. uh, one is existing at a certain point in time, you have, the, you have access to the dialects, the languages that you have around you with the grammar that is currently existing. How detached, different uh, is it from the English that Shakespeare used? I mean, of course, it's it's different, but that doesn't mean that it can't translate. Yeah, and uh, because we are trained to read Shakespeare as a novel, mm. uh, i.e., printed on the page with footnotes, yeah, we're seduced into thinking that there is a singular, correct, standard meaning that we somehow have to obtain. When in fact, the experience of sitting with a play, uh, and this is something that Shakespeare keeps alluding to in his plays, That's very is that there isn't one singular interpretation. Mm. He keeps saying to his audiences, make of this what you will. Mm. That's why his plays have titles like Twelfth Night or What You Will, As uh, You Like It. Mm. Uh, mm. There's a sense that uh, the very act of hearing, seeing, Receiving a play, it's subjective. It's made is an act of translation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I yep. think uh, this is something, unfortunately, at least in my experience, Indian students have had kicked out of them in the high school system, where they're taught that Shakespeare is uh, a colonialist form of sacred scripture, and it's their <laughs> job, their duty, to get it right in order to pass CBSE or other board exams. Uh, when in fact the act of reading is not about getting something right. It's about translating. It's about working with a story, with language, with elements and moving them.
yeah. somewhere. So to sort of extend that further, mm. when you translate Shakespeare into Shakespeare, right? You mm. translate that Shakespearean in English into what his students might see as normal English mm. that they can understand today, mm. and. we know that through these centuries therefore what they are also talking about or what it what it's also breaking mm. is the certain unitary notion yeah of english yeah. but and which sometimes also by the way happens within the same time frame between shakespeare and his students there are these huge centuries and both time and space but for instance when i was translating a dalit novel mm -hmm. from gujarati into english mm -hmm. someone remarked to me sort of in half jest saying ask the author joseph makan who's a dalit right he said ask them to first translate it into gujarati mm. so he was talking about how joseph makan's gujarati is so sort of dialectical is written in the charotari dialect right of a certain region in gujarat saying asking as joseph bhai to translate that into gujarati right <laughs> which is saying exactly the same thing really yeah uh, yeah yeah and what role does the uh, culture industry play in this in what becomes the standard so you you thought about english for a bit mm. uh, Does it surprise you that there is such a thing as English? Maybe that I mean, we're trying to ontologize it, which okay. may not be accurate. Uh, but does is English a surprise to you at all? Is there a is there a role that has been played by? So, if India had not liberalized, if in, just talking of India in the current context, if media was not in the form of fashion it is in, would it have taken a different shape and direction? I, I completely sort of agree with you i think the culture industry had a very big role to play mm. i do think it has been one of the contributors of mm. what we see as english mm. okay what is generally seen as english mm. one could argue that there are kinds and kinds of englishes mm -hmm. right so one could for instance the the intonation the sentence structure that i was quoting earlier about saying i'm not i was remembering you yesterday yeah. Yeah. one would say that's indianized english yeah. someone else might say yeah but well that is english with a capital i and someone might say it's english yeah similarly if my english has one tamil word in it and it's also got some hindi or whatever then it's not only hindi and english mixture yeah. it's also some other mixture going on here not to mention that english itself is a mixture, is a mixture. Yeah. so there is there is all that but i think my own work on english and my thinking about that period i had an instinctive feeling there is something going on at this point in post liberalized india there was something going on because why was i seeing a particular cohabitation of hindi and english mm -hmm. the most Mm -hmm. in ads mm -hmm. in captions mm -hmm. and then i thought i need to see whether ordinarily what happens mm -hmm. and then of course i came away feeling that even ordinary it happens all the time but ordinarily only english is not happening just mixing is happening all the time without people realizing it yep. and therefore the bazaar worked very well for me as a metaphor of languages yeah yep. right yep. i think there is a bazaar of languages of boli of bhasha and everything where all of this happens all the time but when you say pure bhi pura bhi dil mange more that situates that particular kind of a mixture in a certain kind of an economy in a certain kind of a moment there's no doubt about that what is uh, english to you probal as a linguist is there something interesting there it is something that resists codification there is a certain there's a b that is codified in the advertising space that rita is talking about but mm. 
the moment you get into the codification that runs a teaching system, mm. schools or universities and leads to publication and production, mm. uh, the mixture is curtailed or stopped. Mm. There's mm. a certain purity that takes over again. So that there is this division of labor in the culture between the area mm. where the mixing is flaunted and welcomed right, right. and the area where it's not. So how does it reproduce itself? How does it propagate? How does it move forward? Uh, I think there could be something here to do with the liberalization that Rita referred to. Perhaps when the state is calling the shots directly, as in the planned economy of the Nehruvian period, then this is frowned upon and isn't done. There's a certain patriotism at that time, and to be patriotic you have to use Shud Hindi. At least pretend to like it, or you, you can make fun of it uh, when when you're not actually on stage. But <laughs> otherwise, you're supposed to say it's the thing to do. That's what Akashvani should be using, and so on. Right, right. But that right. that that's the Nehruvian period. But right. uh, notice that Nehru never wrote in that Hindi. Hmm. That the major national <laughs> figures never actually practiced what they were, what hmm. their system was preaching. Didn't happen. And why don't we ask a different question? Yeah. When languages come in contact with each other, two or more. Yes. Um, there is obviously a donor language and a recipient language. We're trying to make a model out of it. Um, are there some languages which are better donor languages than recipient languages, if you know what I mean? There seems to be a question of what happens when speakers come into certain kinds of contact. Uh, some of the linguistics books about this keep saying languages don't come into contact, speakers do. Hmm. So one is talking about bilingual individuals mm. in whose brain this contact takes a certain shape in, in their negotiations. And mm. there it seems to me that there are some contact situations where mixture is encouraged and others where it's not. Thus the contrast between the British and the French imperial missions mm -hmm. is fairly stark. You get uh, English uh, explicitly welcoming chutnification and the English going back home after their colonial conquests, showing off the various words that they've picked up here and here and here. That's interesting. There's nothing quite like this in French. Yeah? I mean, the French show off the possessions that they bring home, but not the words. <laughs> mm. I can't recall anything in Baudelaire or elsewhere that the mm. kind of period when this would be important. Sure, mm. sure. That's comparable to the English pride and all these mangoes and things. Mm. Mango is a Tamil word, for example. Yeah. Stuff like that. There's nothing quite like that in French. That's interesting. There's a contrast right here. The French are using this Cartesian grid. And correspondingly, <laughs> the British Empire are more kept insisting mm. on keeping local customs intact, preserving local cultural systems. And they, they were so bent on preserving the cultural system of Fiji that when they wanted to build some industrial infrastructure, they imported people from India and called them coolies to do it. Right. Thus creating a problem for present-day Fiji. Right. 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 And is there such a thing as language contact on a neutral territory? Because there is the imperialistic model where... You invade yes. another country or go somewhere. So there is something that is kind of predictable there. Um, but are there instances of language contact in a neutral place somewhere else? Are there things you can think of? And is there something interesting happening there? I suppose there? the kinds of example that Rita was talking about, but she is quite rightly insisting that there's no point postulating 
two or three different languages but you're sure. in contact because sure. the contact sort of precedes the, the speakers right, with some right. dominant dialects meeting in a neutral territory yeah but when, when she talks about what's happening in Amir Khusro or Kabir that, that there is nothing dominant there that there's a a kind of exchange on equal terms but exchange between poles that you cannot specify in that sense what's the future of French thousand years out l'avenir uh, what does that mean I um, I don't want to get in the business of crystal ball gazing about French. <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, or any language for that matter. Um, because I think what's almost an inherent property of language is the unpredictability of what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kinds of uh, minglings, the kinds of encounters that are going to happen in venues that we can't even dream of mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um But just to go back to the question you were asking before about donor and recipient. Yeah. Again, I'd want to problematize that a little bit because it presumes Please. active and passive an sure. active and passive binary sure. um, when in fact the the economy involving the encounter might be a lot more Reflexive complex. Um so for instance a phrase that uh, I I heard on the streets of Delhi Biti matde yar. Biti matde yar. Yeah. Biti standing for bad trip. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, arguably, English is the donor language there and Hindi is the recipient. Uh, but uh, there's something else going on here, uh, which isn't simply about uh, colonialism or even neo-colonialism. I mean, it's certainly implicated in uh, a, a global culture that is... anglicized in some way. Uh, but if anything, there is almost a swaggering sense of taking possession yeah. here on the part of the recipient. Yeah. <laughs> um, not only um, can do we know what a bad trip is, um, but we can, in Indian fashion, <laughs> turn it into an acronym. <laughs> um, so there, there, there is a complex power dynamic uh, there. Um, And uh, that's why I, I'd want to sort of return to a model of encounter. Again, the bazaar seems such a suggestive metaphor here, but perhaps we also need more modern versions, uh, some of which might be a little bit alarming as well. Uh, the global, much more disembodied marketplace is certainly uh, one of the, the venues in which various languages Or the mix. the d- digital. And the digital, which is arguably... Yeah, which, is some, which can be sometimes like a bazaar, not always, but... But I'm mm. thinking, say, of the slangs that have been popping up in London recently, where um, white kids are speaking with uh, Jamaican accents mm. and using what we would, what mm. some linguists would call bungla loan terms. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, again, there's a kichiri here where it's very difficult mm. to work out Which is the active and which is the recipient? Who has power and who doesn't? Uh, there's a much more complex nexus here of mixing and encounter, um, which I do think is a symptom of, of globalization. Um, but uh, how we read this in terms of who has power has become a lot more complicated. What's the long-term future with all the facts that you know, with all the ideas you know? What's the long-term future of languages? <laughs> I think is it so this kitchri whatever we call it it could be called english it could be called something else that matters a lot less uh, 
thousand years out, two thousand years out, what's going to look like? I think. I know you're just crystal ball gazing, but yeah, I inevitably can push that there, on. there are going to be standardizations uh, of kitcheries, and that's why I don't think it's beyond the question uh, that's uh, out of the question. Sorry, that a uh, hundred years from now there will be a great Indian uh, work of uh, artistic expression uh, written by someone or by many people in a language that we would not recognize as a language right now. Mm. And it wouldn't be the lineal descendant of Hindi or of Tamil or of Marathi or of uh, Bengali. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't have any straightforward lineage at all precisely because there would be so many ingredients in it. Um, and this may have become a standardized form of literature, for all we know. But to a certain extent, all I'm doing is... Uh, uh, making the past prologue to, to the future. This is the way in which Shakespeare and his culture worked. And if you look closely, most languages are um, po polygenealogical in, in this way. Even a language that imagines itself to be as pure as the state version of, of French or certain state versions of French. Or take Hebrew, for instance. This is a language where there has been a great deal of state control over what constitutes legitimate and illegitimate Hebrew, uh, where religious organizations are brought in uh, to make sure that uh, the Hebrew that is the official language is matching the Hebrew of, of Scripture. Uh, but still, you look closely at Hebrew and even the, the modern Hebrew that has been sanctioned by the rabbis, it contains so many elements that come not just from Semitic <laughs> languages, but also so-called Indo-European languages. Semitic and Indo-European are meant to belong to totally different uh, tracks. Yeah. Uh, but Hebrew contains elements of, of Persian as well as Arabic. <laughs> Aramaic is a very mixed language uh, and has had a very close family relationship with Hebrew. And modern Hebrew is just the same. Languages, languages will mix as much as people do. Many ways. What's the future, Prabhupada? I think I'm worried Thousand about the out. politics and that that's where the future becomes a question because politics is a place where trying to forecast the future is part of present-day politics. In fact, the forecasts are what are involved <laughs> in voting and all the other kinds of things people try to do. It's the immediate future, but it always has a shadow for the long-term future. Uh, it seems to me uh, a major trouble in present-day democracy, which, which has, I think, reached a crisis point. Uh, I'm not referring to terrorism itself. I'm referring to the fact that in the democracies today, as far as I can see, people don't feel represented anywhere. And uh, this is true both in the global south and in the global north. Mm. Uh, it seems to me that uh, the difficulty in, in present-day democracies is that the press is segmented. The media uh, in Bengal are split into Bengali media, Hindi media, Urdu media, English media. Mm -hmm. And these constituencies cannot talk to each other in the media space. They can talk to each other on the streets as individuals, but they mm. cannot politically talk to each other. Mm. Because in a particular political forum, mm. 
the discourse is always in one language. However many words from other languages you may use in the mixture in that language, the fact of the matter is that there is going to be discourse either in Bengali or in Hindi or in Urdu or in French. Uh, so or, the languages Hindi, for pub, uh, right. political so in, in discourse, Quebec, public Canada, discourse. In Quebec, there is this uh, standoff between those who want another referendum are hoping to win and to have Quebec secede from the Canadian Federation and those who want to stay within Canada. Now, that discussion is conducted either in French or in English or among the Italian minority in Italian. It can't be conducted together. Yeah. So that the point I'm making is the fact that the media space cannot allow the multilingual street mixing to enter the political negotiation process, I think, throws democracy, the, the institution of representation, into a crisis because the state cannot speak for the people if the people cannot speak with each other yeah. formally yeah. in a mixed language. And th th this is not possible anywhere in the world. We have here a serious trouble, it seems to me. That, that's what makes it hard to forecast the future. We're in a crisis. When you're in a crisis, you can't forecast where we're going to step out of the crisis and how. So are you saying that it's not possible to have a mixed language media, which is shared by vast parts of the population? It's dramatically so in India where you have to make a choice of script. I just talked about Hindi, Urdu, Bengali and English newspapers, which are in four different writing systems. It is going to be hard to find a person, there are some, who sure. know all four scripts and can use them equally fluently. And when you're in places like London or New York, what where more than 100 in? languages are spoken, it is impossible to have mixture of all the relevant languages in, in a... So with all school. the facts being known, Prabal, what's, what's the future? What will happen? People what will, will have happen? to start experimenting, I think, with mixed language political spaces, beginning with the media. What you already have is television interviews where the interviewee and the interviewer are mixing two languages for each other's sake and partly for the sake of the audience. If that can become bigger, if, if you get to the point where the newscast itself is in the mixed language, there's a bit of that in some news channels I've noticed in present-day India that, that there are some television channels that have Hindi news with a lot of English words right. and others that have much more Shuddh Hindi. Right. That, that already begins to show a possible trend. I'm not sure if it will take off. But what you really need is political conversations in which people speak their own languages and try to understand each other on television or on the radio or, or in political meetings. That hasn't yet been happening on a big scale. Uh, There's no political will. What do, what do the rest of us think? What do well, you think it, I, I, I suspect you're right about political conversations, but there are other venues in which there are these plurilingual conversations. Yes. I notice, for instance, listening, listening to cricket commentary. Yes. yes. Uh, one has to keep moving between at English. least Hindi and English. Yes. Yes. That's alternation or it's simultaneous? Sometimes it's alternation. You'll have a chief commentator who's speaking in Hindi for right. a period, right. followed by one who's speaking in English. But I've noticed uh, the after-over commentary, you'll have people who move between Hindi and English in the space of one sentence. Hmm. Um, they'll complete a thought in Hindi that they don't complete in English and vice versa. Hmm. And I still, um, for all the the dreck that, uh, that Bollywood produces, I still have a rather <laughs> utopian attitude to Bollywood as a space in which languages 
have met and mixed. And mm. Bollywood is using increasingly uh, other languages also. Mm-hmm. So if you find there are cops in Mumbai, they Bollywood now will show a dialogue between them in Marathi. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Little bit, but right. it will. Right. I, I was right. dazzled, even as I was completely confused, when I saw Vicky Dona, yeah. for instance, which is uncompromising in what it demands of its audience. Yeah. Uh, it's nominally a Hindi film. Yeah. yeah. Full of Punjabi. Yeah. And English. Yeah. <laughs> the interestingly, the Bengali characters speak English, not Bangla. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is still presuming an audience who will be able to keep moving Board switch between has, the three. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's very interesting. Rita, what's the future? I can see two to to three things that are likely to happen. Sure. One is that what Probalda mentioned earlier about scripts. Mm -hmm. I do think the Roman script is going to be more and more important. Can we, what's your view on that, Probal? It's likely to happen. A lot of people have been using Roman script to write their Bangla or their Hindi. Okay. SMS messages and so on. Sure. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So yeah. that so of the many scripts that exist, I think there would it's likely that we will we will That's sort of gravitate for... gravitate towards Romanization. Sure. To and that'll also resolve some of the other quarrels that people have had over scripts, mm-hmm. which Konkani has had, which Sindhi has had, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing that is beginning to happen already is that the there is a shrinking universe of certain languages. For instance, you, you, a child of 20 in urban India may think, oh, that Bhojpuri is my Dadi Ma's language. Right. And therefore, you, you may end up thinking of that as a dialect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because its universe has shrunk for you, yeah. you think it is a dialect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's not the one that you are using when you go out for a job talk. So that saddens me. Yeah. Uh, Along with that, I also think there is a, while there is a lot of mixing and slangs and all of that, there is a certain kind of impoverishment of vocabulary and language that is taking place at another level. So that, for instance, it's perfectly fine. I don't have to say I'm going to You say I'm going to But if gusal khana appears to you such an exotic word, there is a problem. Mm. That mm. something so ordinary should suddenly appear so exotic to you, <laughs> that worries me. So I, there is an impoverishment there. And my last point really is that with all this, paradoxically, language as a source of identity politics is becoming more important. Mm. So while there is a greater functionality and instrumentality of language, at another level, language as something you mobilize in the service of identity politics and representation, and you become so earnest about about mother tongue, for instance, matrubhasha abhiyan, that has become much more serious. So it is a it's a bizarre situation. <laughs> not a bazaar situation. Not a bazaar situation. <laughs> The Professor, fact that it's not a bizarre situation is the bizarre situation. Professor Annamalai has noticed something interesting about identity politics regarding mm. language. The Constitution of India gives minority speakers, for example, Kannada speakers in Tamil Nadu and vice versa, the right to set up a school of their own mm. and to take state funding. The state is obliged to fund them. 
What Anamalai has noticed, uh, he and his family were Tamilian migrants in Karnataka for a long time. Mm -hmm. He's noticed that, okay, the Kannadigas in Tamil Nadu or the Tamilians in Karnataka Mm -hmm. get the money from the state and then set up an English medium school (laughs) because the constitution doesn't say your school has to function in your language. It just says that you're a linguistic minority and you can set up a school. That's not a linguistic phenomenon at work. But yeah, no, yeah, yeah, so you get ahead in the job market because the children know a lot of English compared yeah. to their yeah, peers. Yeah. The that, language that, of the job market. Noticed, Tell me, right. can an artificial language be created from scratch? Well, I speak one, Esperanto, mm-hmm. and uh, I was hesitating to bring it up because Esperanto has something anomalous about it. It's a case of codified mixture. Esperanto has a mixture in its vocabulary. You see there's elements from Romance languages and Germanic languages and Slavic languages and today more and more elements from other places too. But the point is, because we have O for nouns and R for adjectives and A for adverbs and so on, and we have a whole system of derivational affixes, so you make up your own words most of the time by adding little pieces. Uh, The way we mix is codified. The codification is very simple, and the result of Esperanto being so simple is that it is the only language you can learn entirely on your own without a teacher. I don't know of any other human language that actually functions in society in which you can become totally proficient without I'm a sorry, teacher. I'm sorry, Prabal, you but codify post-facto? No, no, from the start, from the start. Esperanto from day one is in these little button-pushing systems where you mm-hmm. put things together in a particular way and presto, you get a word. So mm. the result is that, uh, suppose suppose you have a word like schlossilo, which is Esperanto for key, and that, that's practically for directly what? from German for, for schlüssel. Key. For key. key. Key, as in the key that opens the lock. Schlossilo, which, which sounds like it's straight from German schlüssel. Schlies, schlüssel now the point yeah. is the il in Esperanto is a word-forming affix that... that signifies instruments. Mm. So if you have something like uh, fermilo, fermi is from French to close, mm. and something you close with can be called a fermilo. The, 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 the ferme is from French sure. and il is from German. Sure. Now that that's codified in the sense that the il is used for every other instrument. Like so you use, pen it, like you use u in Telugu? Like you say, in, te- in Telugu you use u at the end, right? Of the, like some... Uh, in Telugu, U is a phonological uh, thing to make it pronounceable. Uh, Telugus can't finish a word with a consonant. They need a vowel to support it. So that's a uh, supporting vowel. So but Esperanto, Probal, is totally artificial. It's artificial Naturally, if I were to run into you, you were talking about speakers. It's a bit complicated. The, the, what happened is that there was a man who thought he'd start it and then he... He developed cold feet about launching an entire language. He felt that people wouldn't take to it. So he launched a prototype, Mm -hmm. a few words and a few devices, and he issued an initial primer that said, this is a proposal, Uh, you don't have to learn it now, there's a bunch of coupons at the end of the book, please tear out a coupon and send it to me and say, (laughs) I promise to learn the language if you can prove to me that 10 million other people have made the promise. So he had this idea initially. People said to hell with it and started to learn it. What then happened is the community fleshed it out. So from day two, Esperanto has been... How far back do you go with this? 
We're talking about 1887. 1887. And in okay. 1888, the Why man's... would you bother? Why would you bother making a totally new artificial language? It's yeah, not like the, a computer In the 1880s, there was no global language. What you are today assuming about English didn't exist. That's very interesting. Not enough people spoke French and the, the sun of French was setting. And why would you persist with Esperanto in 2015 or 16? The numbers are astronomically increasing. Over the last year, yeah. there's a new place where you can learn Esperanto, the app called Duolingo that you can download on Androids <laughs> and so on. Uh, Duolingo started teaching Esperanto in August. And last month, the figure was there's 200,000 people learning it. My God. What do you attribute this to, Prabhupada? Uh, what do you do with it? No, no why, why, it? Are, why, why are so many people learning Esperanto? Uh, it's a quick language to learn and it's a step to learning anything else. Okay. It's been shown that if you teach children four straight years of French... It's a good primer language to figure out the At the end others. of those four wow. years, they know less French than other children who've had one year of Esperanto and three years of French. Hmm. It's a massive language awareness tool wow. once you learn it. Hmm. So, it makes the next language infinitely so we'll easier with, to learn. We'll end with one question to you, Prabhupada. Yeah. Unemotional yeah. response. Right? What's the future of Esperanto? 10,000 years out. Thousand years out, five hundred, five hundred years out. It's going to be seen more and more as a versatile tool. The tool will become important rather than the particular political purpose it started out with. But what what else is going to happen is, since Esperanto, unlike the other languages, doesn't believe in ownership, it doesn't have custodians, and it believes that the other languages, since they have ownership, are really into violence. Uh, it's into peace at a level that needs that a mean? lot of what understanding. Does, what, what does that mean? Like language being into peace? Uh, it means Which not having boundaries. Which language is into violence? Uh, my son, when he was 10, watched 9-11 happen and said, Daddy, your Esperanto is too peaceful. From now on, I'm going to spend all my time on English because English is violent and the world has just become violent, didn't you notice? So that's that's what it's about, that uh, English sure. is connected to the guns and to the much more complicated weapons I don't even know the names of. I can only talk about guns. I'm kind of You can translate AK-47 into Esperanto. But anyway, it's, it's a trivial point. Right, yeah. Good. Thank you to all of you for making it Thanks. and we look forward to having you soon again. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks.